You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's national women's current affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Shirwa. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Just a heads up, this week's episode discusses family violence and reproductive justice. For crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. So that means we need more resources for the provision of culturally appropriate care, including upskilling our interpreter and bilingual workforce. We need to train healthcare workers in cultural responsiveness. And we need to collaborate with migrant women's um, organisations to develop best practice guidelines. That's Dr Maria H from the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. We'll hear more from Dr Maria real soon. This week, we're speaking to Dr. Maria H. about the Sexual and Reproductive Health Data Report 2021. Dr. Maria is the author of the report and the Acting Research Advocacy and Policy Manager at Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. Because the report covers various areas and we're only a 30-minute show, we're going to focus on just a few key areas. These areas include contraception use, family violence and reproductive coercion. The Multicultural Centre for Women's Health launched its report with a special online panel that featured health experts in the field. If you missed the launch, don't worry, it's available in full on YouTube. And later in the show, we'll play highlights from that panel. But first up, let's learn more about this report. So welcome to Woman on the Line, Dr. Maria. Thank you for having me on the program, Ayan. The Multicultural Centre for Women's Health released the Sexual and Reproductive Health Data Report 2021. Before we look at a few highlights from that report, let's learn about your organisation. Can you give us an overview of the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health? Yeah, so MCWH is a community-based national organisation led by and for migrant and refugee women. Uh, We work to advance health equity and our work is informed by a feminist intersectional lens. And we were established in 1978 because at the time, our research found that migrant women didn't have access to culturally appropriate information about contraception. So one of the first things we did was train bilingual and bicultural women to visit migrant women in their workplace. And at the time, this was mainly in factories, to share information about contraception in women's own languages. So, you know, today we have a team of highly skilled and trained health educators who speak over 30 languages in total, who deliver trained, responsive and accessible health information for migrant and refugee women on a range of topics, including sexual and reproductive health. Uh, So at the moment, we've been delivering quite a lot of information about COVID-19 and vaccinations. Um, So our health education model, I guess, it ensures that women can access information and support where it works for them. So before COVID-19, we delivered information in workplaces, social and community settings, 
and even prisons. Um, and of course, due to COVID-19, we've had to move our education online. Mm. Um, MCWH also has a multilingual health information catalogue um, and that can be accessed via our website. We also offer capacity building and training such as cultural responsiveness training for health service providers and we have a research and advocacy program where we develop resources, publish reports such as the Sexual and Reproductive Health Data Report and share information and knowledge um, through engagement and collaboration with other organisations and government bodies. So the data report. So this report covers several key areas and unfortunately we don't have time to look at each one. So instead, you and I have picked out a few categories to unpack. But before we do that, I think it's important for listeners to understand the purpose of this particular report. So what is this report aiming to achieve? Yeah, that's right, Ayam. We've recently released a sexual and reproductive health data report so that report summarises the latest available data across a range of areas, like you said, um, that impact on the sexual and reproductive health of migrant refugee women. And we've also written an Act Now advocacy paper, which offers recommendations for really advancing health equity for migrant and refugee women across uh, key areas of research, policy and practice. And one of the key areas that this report looks at is contraception use. So according to the research, 60% of people born in non-English speaking countries use contraception, but there are still barriers when it comes to contraceptive management. What are some of these barriers and why do they exist? That's right. So our report shows that migrant and refugee women have the lowest rates of contraceptive use. Like you said, 60% of people born in non-English speaking countries compared to 69% of people born in Australia and 77% of people born in mainly English speaking countries. Uh, so, you know, we know that access to safe, effective and culturally appropriate um, contraception is essential to health, uh, to sexual and reproductive health. Uh, but migrant and refugee women are less likely to have access to in-language and culturally appropriate information. So that's written and verbal information, which makes it really difficult to know what kinds of contraception might be available and best for them. Um, so we talk about structural barriers to access. And for migrant and refugee women, they can include, you know, lack of access to trained interpreters, lack of information that's in-language, the dynamics of decision-making within their interpersonal relationships, a lack of transport and infrastructure, and cost, which can be a big one. Mm. Um, and within services them themselves, there may be a lack of uh, clear guidelines related to culturally responsive practice, and also, uh, as you mentioned, a lack of continuity of care, which we, we know is so important for building trust. Mm. So when you say culturally responsive practice, what does that mean? So in our work, we really talk about culturally responsive practice in much broader terms, and that's part of our intersectional approach. So when we look at what is culturally responsive practice, we're, we're looking at all the barriers to access, and those barriers might be interpersonal, but they also might be structural. Mm -hmm. uh, so it could be that a person's um, visa status might impact whether or not they can access certain types of services. Right, right. So, for example, yeah, so we can look at international students and their sexual and reproductive health as a really good example 
of how structural barriers impact people's access to services. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we're going to get into towards the end of this chat. But I want to look at the early stages of pregnancy. So a new term that I came across in this report that I had never heard of is called reproductive coercion. Can you explain what this is and the factors that contribute to reproductive coercion? Yeah, that's right, Ayan. Um, reproductive coercion is kind of an emerging area at the moment within, um, I guess, the prevention of violence against women's space. And reproductive coercion can be anything that limits a person's autonomy to practice their reproductive autonomy. So it can be that uh, perpetrators are, are forcing women to either terminate pregnancies or have pregnancies, Uh, it could be that they're interfering with um, methods of contraception, it can be that they're influencing or coercing them into either not taking contraception or taking contraception with the view to either not get pregnant or get pregnant. Uh, And so when we look at reproductive coercion, we also look at it within broader structural terms as well to consider what might be happening for migrant and refugee women who experience structural forms of reproductive coercion. For various reasons, they might not be able to access um, services like abortion care services because of cost. And so we really think that that could also be a form of reproductive coercion as well. Hmm. And reproductive coercion, as you mentioned, is a form of family violence. And as we know, family violence is a universal problem. As I was reading the report, so the figures are just like really alarming and blew my mind. So around 35% of women around the world experience some form of intimate partner violence. In Australia, that number is one in three. But for migrant and refugee women, This issue is compounded further by migration-related processes. Not many people are familiar with that Mm. term. Can you explain what we mean when we say migration-related processes? Yeah, absolutely. So, again, I guess the migration system itself can increase migrant and refugee women's vulnerability to violence. So women on temporary visas or newly arrived women can't access government support services. And so because of financial insecurity, they may choose to stay in violent relationships. And there's also the issue of social isolation, uh, lack of culturally appropriate services, um, and perpetrators may use their partner's insecure visa status to manipulate and control their partners and force them to stay. So migration-related processes really looks at how the system can reinforce or support the violent behaviours that increases women's dependency on their partners. As you mentioned earlier, international students um, are one of the groups that face lower health outcomes. Can you explain why that is? And also, are they supported by like things like Medicare? Mm, that's a really good question, Ayan. So we know that there's not a lot of research on the sexual and reproductive health of international students. But what we do know is that there are high rates of unplanned or unintended pregnancy among this cohort. So, yeah, some challenges for international students include misunderstanding of informed consent, uh, lack of knowledge about abortion laws, lack of access to doctors who are women 
Um, and there's also, like in all communities, there's stigma and fear and shame around accessing sexual and reproductive health services. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest challenges can actually be cost. So in terms of Medicare, temporary um, migrants and international students aren't entitled to Medicare and they must have overseas student health cover for the duration of their stay. But the insurance doesn't cover pregnancy-related conditions within the first 12 months of arrival. Um, and we know that 70% of all claims for pregnancy-related treatment for international students actually occur within the first 12 months. So if an international student or a partner of an international student experiences an unintended pregnancy, sort of within that first 12 months of being in Australia, they may be faced with limited reproductive choices um, and that's a real problem because, as you know, we mentioned earlier, that means they can't fully exercise their sexual and reproductive autonomy. Mm. Yeah. So when I was reading the report, I was just like um, basically flabbergasted, not only by the numbers, but just how little information that we who aren't from these communities um, don't know about. In the beginning of the report, you sort of do touch on that. So you touch on the um, the gaps in data reporting when it comes to sexual and reproductive health. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there isn't a lot of um, data and evidence when it comes to um, migrant and refugee women's sexual and reproductive health. The data is, um, when the data is gathered, it's not disaggregated by you know, visa status, country of birth, uh, languages spoken or ethnicity, and there's no consistent mechanisms for, uh, for collating and collecting data across the states either. So the data that we've been able to kind of collect and put into this report is from a range of different sources. So we've looked at community-based research and also um, population-based research. Um, but the trends are definitely clear. This is the third... Uh, data report that we've published. So we published our first one in 2010 and then again in 2016. And in 2021, you know, the, the findings are, the findings are pretty, um, similar to the previous, uh, iterations. So not much has changed. Um, and migrant and refugee women, yeah, I, I guess are still, you know, at greater risk of suffering, um, maternal and child health outcomes as well. Mm. Um, okay, so Act Now, so that is an advocacy paper that follows on from the data report. So what is this paper advocating and, and what is it saying is needed to address the situation? Yeah, that's right. So we decided to put together an Act Now advocacy paper because we really wanted to offer some key recommendations across, you know, these key areas of research policy and practice. Um, and in our Act Now paper, I guess what we're trying to say is that, you know, when, when people hear that migrant and refugee women experience poorer health outcomes, it might sound like they're vulnerable because they come from particular cultural communities, but that explanation doesn't give us the full picture. So when we read the data report and when we think about what the issues are, it's not, it's not because, you know, they come from particular communities but because um, it's really due to social or systemic barriers like we spoke about. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the data report really 
I guess, asks us to embed an intersectional lens into our policy analysis and all of the work that we do. So that's our research and our practice. And that means we have to understand how the system um, and our policies impact women's lives, just as we've spoken about. And we have to ensure that our strategies and our programs meet the needs of those who are most marginalised. And I think that's what the report does really well in showing that these issues are not inherent in these communities. As you've mentioned, it's structural issues. It's also a healthcare system that doesn't include people on the margins, like people on precarious visas and and, and so on. So I'm glad this report does exist. Like we were saying earlier, AM, we really have to ensure that migrant women's um, leadership is being centred and that targeted and sustainable investment is being made to community organisations who can deliver tailored and innovative programs. Um, So that means we need more resources for the provision of culturally appropriate care, including upskilling our interpreter and bilingual workforce. We need to train healthcare workers in cultural responsiveness. And we need to collaborate with migrant women's um, organisations to develop best practice guidelines. I think overall we have to remember that everyone has the right to access healthcare in all contexts, including in a pandemic, Um, but under the current system, not everyone is able to access their rights. So we need to advocate for better and fairer systems, and that includes our migration and health systems, so we don't discriminate based on things like visa type or residency status or languages spoken or country of birth or socioeconomic background. So it's really ultimately about everyone being able to get the care they need. That was Dr. Maria H, the author of Sexual and Reproductive Health Data Report 2021. If you're interested in learning more about the report, visit the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health website. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. As we said earlier, MCWH launched their report with a special panel presentation in August. And up now, we're going to listen to highlights from that launch. Enjoy. I might begin with you first, um, Dr. Cott. Um, And I want to know, I mean, what are the most pressing um, sexual and reproductive health issues for migrant refugee women in the area that you work in? Thank you very much, Santilla, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I am, which is also the same as Dr. Tamara Kwateng. I would also like to acknowledge that Indigenous women have been birthing on this land for many, many, many years. What are the things that are specific to sexual reproductive health care in the field of childbirth? Now, The thing is that childbirth doesn't occur in isolation, isn't it? It occurs in the bigger context of actually having good health care for all women. What I see every day is the fact that uh, all is also highlighted in the report that uh, migrant and refugee women have higher likelihood of developing complications in their pregnancy, things like preeclampsia, things like diabetes. They're more likely to have premature preterm births. They're more likely to have complications during the birth itself. They're more likely to have things like cesarean sections, things like needing to have a forceps or a vacuum birth, more likely to bleed after they've had a baby, more likely to have significant tearing after birth. Now, that is all sort of the physical side of things, but it's also important to remember that these are women who don't always access healthcare at the same time in pregnancy as 
non-Caucasian women, non, uh, sorry, Caucasian women and non-migrant women, they also may have language and other barriers. So how I look at it is there's the sort of group of factors that affect women of migrant and refugee origin in general. So things like language, things like access to transport, access to healthcare literacy, ability to understand what is being said to them in a language that is foreign to them, access to literature that they can read and understand, which is in a language that they can read and understand. There's also the environmental factors and migration we know comes with a whole host of environmental factors trauma that you may have experienced in the process of migration, in the process of becoming a refugee, trauma that you continue to experience because you don't have the same family and social networks that you would have had because you are in a foreign nation, in a nation where you don't have any roots or connections. There's also the fact that you have certain genetic things that are specific to a particular genetic group. And you know the sort of common thing is things like thalassemia. Yes, we know that certain genetic conditions are more likely to happen in certain groups. But the other side of it is the fact that when we look at the health of migrant women, even when we compare the outcomes for first, second, third generation migrant women, we find that there's still a gap. So when you think about third generation migrant women, these are women who have probably grown up in Australia, they know the language well, they can advocate for themselves, but those differences in outcomes don't get back to zero, they still exist. And so I think there is a very important thing that we should acknowledge, that we can't always put these differences in outcomes down to not being able to access healthcare or not being able to advocate for yourself or not being able to understand the language. There is something that I think healthcare professionals need to recognize about why there is a difference even when women can speak the language and can advocate for themselves. Is it because we, view migrant and refugee women or women who are of a certain ethnicity differently? And do we treat them differently? This is a really important question to ask ourselves. And that is not because you know we consciously are doing it. It's because look, we all have our own unconscious biases that we may not recognize unless we actually take the effort to find out what that bias is and how it's affecting our interaction with women. The other thing I also always say is that women may not understand the language you speak, but all women understand body language. And so as a professional, wherever we might be, when we have that body language, when we're seeing a migrant or refugee woman, that clearly says to them that, oh gosh, not, not this difficult conversation, the woman understands. You may not say it in words. You may, your interpreter will not need to interpret body language that is clear for a woman to see. So again, that is not something that we consciously do. I'm pretty sure that all of us consciously want to give the best healthcare, but it's an unconscious thing that, you know, it's at the back of our mind and it sometimes comes across in body language. And that is also really important for all of us to recognize. So those are the sorts of things that I see happening around me being a healthcare professional. And I think a lot of it should come back to us. Yes, education of women is important, but putting the onus constantly on women to have to advocate for themselves shouldn't be how it should be. I think we should learn to recognize for ourselves as well how things change for us. Wonderful, thank you, Dr. Cott. Um, Bonnie Corbin, if I can come to you, um, I wonder, you know, what are some of the most pressing um, issues um, in this area that, that you see in your line of work? Thank you. 
Now, I will start also by acknowledging that I am joining this webinar from unceded Wurundjeri country and I pay my respects to elders past and present. The most pressing thing that I see in this space is how often migrant and refugee women's health is spoken about in the media and public affairs, but how little that translates into investment and action. So the minister just before spoke about the federal budget and the budget promised $535 million to women's health. But if you do the numbers, that equates to less than $15 per woman per year. In addition to that, none of that money has yet been allocated to migrant and refugee women's health through targeted or specific funding streams. When it comes to sexual and reproductive health, in particular in abortion care, at the moment we're fighting for women to access any service provider. In an ideal world, people would not only be able to access safe and quality healthcare, but they would have autonomy to choose from a number of health service providers. Ideally, migrant and refugee women, including women on temporary visas, would choose from a list of mainstream, specialist and community controlled health service providers, depending on their personal needs, interpersonal relationships and community context. We know that community led and community controlled service providers are more likely to centre intersectional needs of women. For example, migrant women with disabilities, LGBTIQ migrants and women on temporary visas. We are the health system and we need to act now to overcome the barriers demonstrated by this report. We need to build health pathways that enable a variety of personalised and community-centred care. If this government is serious about migrant and refugee women's health equity, they will invest in community-controlled migrant and refugee women's health services. If I can come now to um, Andrea Criado, um, I guess a similar question as well. Um, you know, have you seen um, the report's findings reflected in the work that you do? Um, yes, definitely. Uh, so here at Ishar, we are a community-based uh, women's health service, and we see over 2,000 women from migrant and refugee backgrounds each year. And um, we, we find even now, 20 years later, working in the sector, that the issues um, highlighted in the report are prevalent. We see it every day. Uh, women find it um, uh, difficult to access services. Uh, they are high, higher risk of getting, um, you know, uh, SDIs. They are at higher risk of um, multiple pregnancies that they don't really want, uh, necessarily want to have, cultural barriers, religious uh, reasons. Uh, lack of understanding of the health system, access issues, uh, and very low health literacy. Uh, all of these factors combined uh, together get presented in practically all the clients that walk into our, into our service. Um, and yes, there is a need to um, have services that go out to the women because accessing them is um, so for a number of factors, Thanks again to Dr. Maria H. from the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. The Sexual and Reproductive Health Data Report 2021 is an excellent report that highlights the problems migrant and refugee women face when accessing health services. Visit the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health website to learn more about this report. And that is all from us this week. Women on the Line is a Community Radio National Women's Current Affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CI in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 
9419-8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website at 3cr.org.au slash Women on the Line. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavira. I'm Ian Shirwa and I hope you can tune in again next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.